Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived, and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing. Today, we have a really terrific panel with us. We have former Philadelphia Mayor Michael Nutter, who many of you know from his experience turning Philadelphia around after the last recession. We're going to hear from him about that story and about looking forward. And we're going to look forward with Eric Berman and Mike Imber. Eric is a former Deputy Massachusetts State Auditor and represents many states and cities now and working on ways to help monetize state municipal assets to raise some badly needed cash. Mike Imber is a longtime restructuring expert, took part in the Detroit bankruptcy case, probably is best known recently for his work on behalf of the state of Connecticut in uh, attempting to restructure the state pension system, at least restructure the funding of the state pension system. I think we'll have an exciting discussion today. Just a couple of housekeeping details for you. The archive version of this and all of our past uh, special briefings going back to April are available on the Volcker Alliance website and the Penn IUR website at University of Pennsylvania. We have a great audience of really, really wonderful professionals, budget, audit, tax, academics. These are people who really operate at a high level and really are making America run. As I said before, we appreciate your taking the hour this week and in past weeks, and we invite you to join us for future sessions. So on to the agenda at hand. This is on the funding of essential services. My colleague, Susan Wachter, co-director of the Penn Institute of Urban Research at University of Pennsylvania, will take it away. Uh, Susan? Thank you so much, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here. I welcome all of our attendees, and it's my honor to welcome Mayor Michael Nutter, who is the former mayor of the city of Philadelphia. And Mayor Nutter was mayor in 2009 when the great crisis and recession hit and hit Philadelphia hard. And the mayor's response at that point was courageous and difficult, but it actually put Philadelphia in the path of growth, the path of growth which has continued in Philadelphia has prospered till, of course, this. So, Mayor Netter, what options do we have? Well, Susan, thank you. And thank you for your kind, uh, kind remarks. You know, the current environment has certainly all of the elements of 2008, but I think is way beyond that. Uh, you'll recall, I came in office in January of 08. We didn't even know the Great Recession had started, but the government didn't shut businesses down. Businesses shut themselves down at that time because of the economic crisis. This is a worldwide health crisis, which has forced local, state, and to some extent the federal governments to shut down virtually every business that is either, quote unquote, not life-saving or not uh, essential. We, the governments put people out of work, if you will, in a, in a, in a strange a series of events. And so the impact is even greater. The economic loss, it seems, will be larger and with no particular end in sight. And as quickly as things did shut down, it will take a while before they ramp back up. Having said all of that, some of the techniques and strategies from the past would probably serve us well. I mean, running out of money is still running out of money. And you'll need a combination of tools available to you. First, obviously, you need more revenue. Where can that come from? You know, unfortunately, you could raise taxes. You could get further support from the state, uh, but states are struggling as well. Or, perfectly situated under our system for 200 plus years is the federal government that could utilize extraordinary powers uh, to help cities, counties, and states in a time of crisis. And it is, in fact, the proper role and responsibility, in my view, of the federal government. Then naturally, you also have to look at savings, often also known as cuts. You want people to be hurt the least and the last, in my view, my philosophy. And so I think that every service, every program, every activity, every dollar spent has to be examined and put on the table. Now, just because it's put on the table doesn't mean it's going to happen, but it should still be on the table because this is about choices. 
and decisions, tough decisions that need to be made. They will not be popular no matter what you do. Someone will be upset. Susan, you've heard me say more than once that, you know, if you have a deep-seated need to be loved and admired every day, you're in the wrong business. You should go run a pet shop or something. So this is not about your popularity. It's about the future of the city and for Philly, it really is about the region. Most cities are, in fact, the center of regional economy. And as I think William said earlier in his intro, it's the cities, the counties, and the states that really are the economy of the United States of America. Uh, the federal folks don't necessarily see it that way, but the reality is, is that about 90% of the gross domestic product of the United States of America is generated in cities and metro areas. So we are the economy, which is why things collapsed so quickly. So I think that mayors and city councils and governors and general assemblies and county execs and commissioners uh, all across the country are now not only counting, unfortunately, I say with a heavy heart, how many people are sick, how many people have died, but also now in May, for many, a fiscal year is ending and soon one beginning. They spent money that they had not allocated for this and will continue to spend more with less tax revenue coming in. So this is not a technical term, but I think it's accurate. This is a mess. And we have cities sometimes now in conflict with their states and many of the cities and states in conflict with the federal government. This is a call for leadership at all three levels uh, and more partnership. There's no question that cutbacks will have to be made in any number of services and programs. It's unfortunate. There's a constituency for every one of them. But one of the great lessons, unfortunately, that we learned in 08, 09, and 10 is it's really hard to run a government with no money. And you have a responsibility to the citizens for the short term. People still want their trash picked up. They still want the basic services. But you also have a responsibility for the long term and to always have a longer term vision of where you want things to be. And you don't take steps today that will disrupt or interfere with the longer term growth. And that's what we tried to do in my time. Some things we got right, some things we got badly wrong, but the goal was always about the future and it was about the growth. And that's why I think that 2012, 13, 14, 15, when we saw a tremendous rebound, upgrade in our bond rating, restart of the tax cuts and a variety of other things that happened was because of the tough, hard decisions that really pissed a lot of people off in the early years, but were a part of the resurgence in the latter years. So I'll leave it at that. But, you know, this is tough work and it's not for the faint of heart. Yes. Thank you, Mayor. And thank you for pointing to the need for making decisions today to respond to the hard issues, but with the long run responsibility for long run recovery and growth. And to the importance of cities and counties and metros, the metros are the country's economy and the way these go, so go the country with the important role of the states in between. And we'll turn now to a leader who was in place at a time of difficulty and hear his view on states' role. But first, let me remind attendees that you're listening to a special briefing that's presented by Boker Alliance and PennRUR. And the archived versions of today's and previous calls are available at the Voker Alliance and PennIUR website. I am very pleased to be able to introduce now Eric Berman, who is the former Deputy Comptroller of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and currently a partner at the accounting firm Valley LLP. So give us your view, please, Eric, from the perspective of the role of states We've heard how cities are where the action is and are particularly hurt, and they could turn to states, but states are also hurting. Thank you very much, Susan. And again, it's great to be with you. I wholeheartedly agree with the mayor. States and working in partnerships with uh, local governments need to think differently in a lot of different ways and consider things they may have never considered before, things like shared service models, consolidation, and so on. I think about uh, public institutions of higher education that have minimal endowments uh, or differentiation from peer institutions. They are especially vulnerable, but all of these entities within states and in local governments have tremendous opportunity as they own significant capital assets that can be repurposed to generate revenues uh, in areas such as public housing, public health, 
elder care, additional primary and secondary space to meet social distancing constraints and so on. And one thing that has become very, very evident as we've gone through this crisis is we have a tremendous digital divide that's out there in internet service, uh, which has become almost essential in community function. Again, I I agree with the mayor in that governments are hamstrung at all levels and they need to work together. Again, governments can only raise revenues, cut spending, but you can't cut spending to raise prosperity. In some cases, yes, you can issue debt to fund operations, but the Internal Revenue Code is simply not in your favor. And yeah, it may provide a budgetary resource except for New York City because it becomes a liability. Back in the previous fiscal crisis, uh, when I was a deputy controller of, of the Commonwealth, we did transfer unrestricted balances from funds as a potential source. But you have to remember that when you transfer unrestricted balances, one, it doesn't equal cash. And second, once it's gone, it's gone. And third, those are unrestricted balances are some politicians' uh, nest egg for the future. But the thing that is, I think, again, most important is to consider assets that are unmonetized. We have a tremendous opportunity to monetize assets that are just sitting there dormant. And we're not just talking about highways, roads, bridges, tunnels, and and water sewer and so on. We have electrical grids. We have things in governments that are kind of nice to have, but really may not make economic sense as we go forward that are there. There are a number of different opportunities that are available. For example, land. Government tends to be among the largest landowners. Uh, if you think about all the highway infrastructure, the open space, and so on. Now, granted, we're not going to pave over local space. There's just not going to happen, in certainly in my lifetime. But again, thinking about the digital divide and the way that technology is improving, certainly we can use land for things like 5G cell towers. Certainly those can be put on the sides of buildings to help bridge the digital divide. Certainly, as folks in Massachusetts have seen, as they've driven along the Massachusetts Turnpike, the sides of the roads are blanketed with solar panels. Every you know few miles or so, there's a bank of solar panels, and that's turning unused, unmonetized land into potentially revenue. And again, there's probably going to be building stock that's out there that's going to be consolidated or unused and so on. Certainly, that can be monetized, sold, turned into some other purpose to essentially provide a revenue stream. Certainly, there are air rights available over freeways and so on. Again, as long as it makes economic sense. Uh, Again, buildings, there's going to be plenty of unused floor space that's out there that could easily be leased. We could easily see governments disposing of stadiums, convention centers, perhaps even airports and golf courses that are, again, nice to have, but really don't do a lot in in this new economy that we're transferring into to generate uh, revenues. Now, am I going to see the state of New York to put the golf course out at Bethpage uh, up for sale in the state park, which is among the best golf courses in America? I don't think so, but who knows, maybe if desperate times bring uh, desperate measures. One thing that Michael will talk about in the next segment is talking about uh, contributing assets to uh, defined benefit plans. And again, anything like that can be done as long as it makes economic sense, complies with the law, and can provide you know immediate revenues to pay for benefits. Contributing a building to a defined benefit plan doesn't make a lot of economic sense in the short run because it doesn't provide revenues unless that building is generating lease revenue. Well, commercial real estate right now is not having a good time. And so clearly there's that needs to be thought out and analyzed, unfortunately, rather quickly. And again, there may be additional overlooked areas such as the government itself. And I mentioned shared service models, which are springing up certainly to share resources to cut spending by doing overhead type functions in a shared model. Certainly, I've discussed with clients who've asked, 
could there be a possibility of a merger or acquisition or disposal of operation and annexation? Well, again, sure, that can be done. Uh, in California, there are local area formation commissions that that is entirely what they do. But again, it needs to make economic sense. Um, in Vermont, it was announced that community colleges may be consolidating and there was a backlash from the local community. So that needs to be considered as well. The defined benefit plans themselves could be a source of economic activity. Defined benefit plans such as pensions and other post-employment benefit plans have long made investments in local jurisdictions. There could be a model that that is developed where the plan provides seed capital for you know, an EIDL or a PPP style loan program coupled with a local banking institution to help revitalize Main Street. Uh, could that work? It really, again, depends on the board of the plan's uh, appetite for doing such investment. Also depends on the law, depends on risk management and so on. So there are opportunities that are there. They just need to be realized as long and think differently. Well, thank you very much, Eric. And if anybody knows about restructuring opportunities and restructuring difficulties, it's Mike Ember, who was a former commissioner of the Connecticut Pension Sustainability Commission and recently joined Conway McKenzie as managing director in the government and municipal practice alongside Andy Dillon, the uh, former Michigan state treasurer. Mike, you've been through numerous municipal and corporate restructurings. Detroit being uh, probably the, the biggest and the baddest of them all. And you've done work on trying to restructure the funding of pensions. We're probably going to see a lot of governors and legislatures either eliminating or cutting back on pension contributions, which is a form of taking on long-term debt to achieve a short-term saving. It's a budget maneuver that the Volcker Alliance has frowned on and and it contributes to low grades for a number of states. So what are we likely to, to see in this period and what's going to happen with pension funding, especially as you see it? Well, Bill, first, thanks for having me on and very much appreciate the opportunity to speak to your audience. I think that there is an expectation that governments are going to look for creative solutions to bridging their budget deficits this year and next. Some will be tempted to take pension holidays where they're not putting away any money, and they're going to likely be punished by the rating agencies for doing that. And their bondholders probably won't be terribly pleased either because I think it enhances or exacerbates, is a better word, financial instability. I would like to tell you about my experience in Detroit, because I think it is instructive of the kinds of possible creative solutions that could be available to us now. During the Detroit bankruptcy, I served as the financial advisor to several banks that had financed a $1.4 billion contribution to Detroit's pension fund. And at the end of the case, my clients ended up accepting a fair bit of Detroit's owned real estate as a major part of its recovery. And bankruptcy judge Stephen Rhodes specifically cited the alignment of interests between my creditor clients and the recovery of the city in the acceptance of these assets. And this experience was the catalyst for a concept that I'd like to describe for you that can reduce legacy obligations like pension and OPEB, potentially increase cash flows, and stimulate economic growth. And I would like to echo Eric Berman's remarks. There is tremendous unlocked value in government's capital assets. And let me add to that, I want to target capturing that value to pay down pension debt and even drive infrastructure investment. Eric described how Raw land, office buildings, golf courses, stadiums, parking garages, hospitals, nursing homes are just some of the assets that could potentially be put to a better purpose. Even air rights, rights of way, other intangibles are often underutilized. And if the asset is not essential 
for the delivery of government service, then perhaps there is an alternative and higher, better use. Give you an example. Suppose we have raw land in Pennsylvania that is just sitting on the balance sheet and it's been there since, oh, the 18th century. Its fair market value might potentially be measured in millions of dollars, but it continues to be carried at a de minimis cost on the Commonwealth's balance sheet. If the government could tap into that value and use it to offset unfunded pension and OPEB liabilities, it could have an immediate positive cash flow impact on general fund budgets. It could stimulate economic development. It could create jobs and even grow the tax base. Now, you could capture the value immediately by selling that asset today, but in my experience, that usually limits the value benefit for the government and hands all of the upside potential for that asset to the private sector you just sold it to. There is a way to get the benefit of the value today and the upside potential value tomorrow through a transfer of the asset to the pension. And there are two potential approaches to achieve that goal. The first is that a government could affect an in-kind contribution of the asset directly to the pension. New Jersey did this three years ago when it contributed its state lottery directly to the pension. But there's another transfer method that I think is superior, and that's transferring the assets into a trust, which issues ownership shares in that trust to one or more pensions that the government sponsors. It's a little difficult to carve up a physical building between the police and the fire and the civil service pension funds. But if you were to transfer it into a construct I call the legacy obligation trust, that trust could issue, say, 100,000 shares, and it can be easily divided between pensions. Think of it as sort of a specialized real estate investment trust. And the fair market value at the time of contribution can offset the actuarial pension liability and consequently reduce the catch-up payment that the government might otherwise need to budget to pay down the underfunding. Now, a hard asset sitting in a trust is hardly liquid and it won't be able to pay down your retiree benefits as they come due, at least not initially. The trust would have to be managed by an independent professional that has expertise in the assets that are placed into the trust. And the manager could be incentivized to maximize the economic value of the assets such that as the value of the trust grows, it further offsets the pension underfunding because it's the trust is still owned by the pension. Now, go back to the Pennsylvania raw land example. Assume for a moment that raw land is not suitable for any kind of residential or commercial development. And for the sake of discussion, let's just assume that land is worth a million dollars today and it's placed into a legacy obligation trust. The manager could develop that property as a solar farm and the trust could grant a 50-year lease to a utility to build and operate the solar farm. So now you've taken this dormant piece of land that could be turned into a cash generating asset that provides green energy. You just made an infrastructure investment and the economy is stimulated with the initial construction of the solar farm and it provides jobs because the solar farm has to be maintained every year and the land value has been enhanced. So in a few years, it might be worth say $3 million, further offsetting the unfunded pension. And the cash flow from the leased land can be sent as a dividend to the pension. And later, the land can be sold to the utility because the trust has gotten the upside benefit. Just sell it to the utility. So in other words, the retirees get the benefit of that upside development value rather than handing it over to the private sector through an outright sale. Several governments have already started looking seriously at this in-kind asset contribution approach. New Jersey gave us an example three years ago with the transfer of the lottery. 
And a year ago, they commissioned a study that hasn't been released yet on evaluating all of New Jersey's other infrastructure assets that could potentially be transferred. City of Hartford, Connecticut, a few years ago, made a land contribution to its pension. And probably the single best example we can cite, but we have to look outside the United States, is in Queensland, Australia, where the state of Queensland contributed a toll road to its pension and took a $3 billion credit against its unfunded pension liability. And then they improved the operation and maintenance of the toll road, lengthened the toll road, which increased its toll generating capability. And then five years after the initial contribution, sold it to the private sector for $7 billion. So in the span of five years, Queensland unlocked $7 billion of equity value that had been sitting on its balance sheet. This whole concept that I just described for you, I brought to the state of Connecticut three years ago, and they ended up creating this pension sustainability commission that you heard Bill talk about. We spent about nine months evaluating the potential for using the in-kind asset contribution approach. We produced a report that confirmed that the trust approach could work, but nobody on the commission wanted to commit to which assets might be suitable for contribution. And we ended up asking the legislature to guide us on which assets they would be willing to make contribution on. And we do not yet have an answer from the legislature on that. Illinois, a year ago, Governor Pritzker formed an asset transfer task force which has been studying the issue as well. So to to wrap it up for you, Bill, the opportunity today is that as we struggle through this financial shock from the pandemic, this lot approach could be a useful tool to help bridge budget gaps and capitalize on a new approach to economic development. Most importantly, make good on the promise to retirees to fund their pensions. Well, thank you. Thank you, Mike. Perhaps in in the discussion, we'll note this. I I just noticed yesterday that the the New Jersey State Lottery, not surprisingly, is coming up short on the the amount of revenue it's promised to the pension because people have stopped buying lottery tickets and they're unable to buy lottery tickets in their usual outlets and have to rely on online sales. So there's risk involved in these transactions, as there should be. I want to remind you, you're you're listening to Special Briefing, which is co-sponsored by the Volcker Alliance and the Penn Institute for Urban Research. The archived versions of this and previous broadcasts are all available on the Penn IUR and Volcker Alliance websites. We encourage you to go there and to add any questions to the presenters. Uh, We'll have some contact information for you later. I'd like to to shift this conversation back to Susan and Mayor Nutter, for, for starters. I think what Eric and Mike have laid out are very ambitious, creative solutions, not the be all and end all to be sure, but creative solutions for, for raising funds. Philadelphia, during and after the crisis, had an experiment with the privatization of the Philadelphia Gas Works, which didn't come out as intended. And I'm wondering if Mayor Nutter in Susan, too, because you're you're in Philly and you've been through this, you can talk about sort of the pluses and minuses of, of these approaches, which we're discussing today. Bill, may I just quickly interject here that I'm particularly, I think, be helpful for Mayor Nutter to, in responding to this, also follow up on the distinction between cuts that are necessary for the short run and cuts that undermine long run growth. and perhaps some examples, and also the opportunity that may be presented in times of compromise. Sure. You know, it was mentioned earlier about, uh, you know, for instance, how rating agencies look at some of the things that you do, and uh, the discussion earlier about Detroit. We were very fortunate, and it wasn't me, it was the smartness of the people around me. I mean, we stayed in constant touch with the rating agencies in New York, and, you know, maybe we just also benefited from, you know, the proximity between the Philadelphia and New York and the three rating agencies, we kept them informed every step along the way. You know, Nancy Winkler and Rebecca Reinhardt 
uh, both stayed in touch with them. And, you know, for many citizens, you know, like a radio agency is, what does that really mean? For many people, that has nothing to do with the day-to-day services of the government. Actually, they're quite important. You think about borrowing costs and just the ability to access the, the capital markets. And so that level of communication, I think, was critical for us, telling them the truth, not really kind of painting always the rosiest of pictures. I think that they appreciated the honesty and the painstaking methods and that we had plans, quite honestly. They could understand and see what we were doing. They had a story to tell and tell your story. Again, I often say, if you're not telling your story, nobody else is going to tell it for you. So that's one. Two, you know, as I mentioned earlier, more than likely there will have to be some cuts. Uh, you want them to be a little bit of the, you know, what the medical profession believes in. You know, I mean, you try to do the least amount of damage, but often, you know, the team would come to me and they'd say, well, here are our options. You know, I would say, well, none of these are good. And they'd say, well, that's the whole point. There are no good options. There are least worst options. And you try to pick the one that has the least amount of damage on the citizenry. And so often there were calls for, you know, severe downsizing. And I'm not making a comment about any other city in the country. But at that time, back in 08, 9, 10, we tried to do everything we possibly could not to lay people off. In the middle of a crisis, putting more people out of work, literally, you know, is generally not the path you want to pursue. But you also need people to do things. How are you going to collect, in many instances, the revenues that, you know, the people who are paying their taxes, you need people to process uh, activity. Uh, if the government is open, you still have to provide certain services, essential services to make the place run. And so we did push back in some instances. And, you know, there were some, you know, opinion makers out there who thought we didn't do enough. I appreciate that. I, I respect that. But you always have to anticipate that there is going to be a better time or at least bad time, or lesser bad time. And preserving that core of the government, I think, is critical. With regard to ideas, you know, look, I love interesting, creative, great ideas as much as the next person. But I also live, you know, with my feet on the ground and in a real world of people, personalities, and politics. And what is potentially the greatest idea since sliced bread may have no political life to it whatsoever for any number of different reasons. You know, is it logical? Can people understand it? What are the risks? Who's for it? Who's against it? Who proposed it? Who didn't? I mean, just in a real conversation like we're having, you can't escape some of those dynamics. Uh, Is the public ready for it? Is the political community ready for it? Does it have an impact on the union workforce? What's the business community think, the civic community, the clergy sector? I mean, you know, it's a big city. It's a big enterprise. And so I think constant regular communications is critical. Again, sometimes I think we did okay. Sometimes we were not good at that. And sometimes you pay a price for that. So I think what people want to know is, do you have a plan? Do you have some ideas? Do they make any sense? And ultimately for citizens, can I understand what you're talking about? Does it make any sense at a fundamental level before you can even capture the hearts and minds of folks? It has to pass a test of simplicity, to be honest. And often complication is the enemy of of the simplicity. That's a very sound response. What we've seen with a number of privatizations is that they've been extremely, extremely complicated. Some have gone into bankruptcy, not that all all private investment in public assets are, are bad or, or good necessarily, but sometimes the devil is in the details. I want to get to a, a big picture question before we get to some of the audience's questions. We have we have time for that. And um, it's, it's a two-part question, which I think I hope everybody on the panel will, will jump in on. The question is, what happens if Congress doesn't come up with the Senate, really doesn't come up with another aid package? Mitch McConnell has already said that the $3 trillion and change HEROES Act that the House passed is DOA. We discussed a, a $500 billion plan uh, last couple sessions ago that the Problem Solvers Coalition has introduced in both houses. So... What happens to states and localities if there isn't another package? And the second is, is what kind of incentives can the federal government offer as part of its of its aid package to encourage the type of creative solutions that we've been discussing today? And should incentives rather than penalties be part of a future aid package? Mayor Nutter, if you'd like to take oh, that, and then I'd be interested think, in Eric and Mike sure. uh, as, as well. 
I think the first part, the very short answer to the first part of your question is if the federal government doesn't do something next, specifically, directly, without a whole lot of, like a family call, so I'll say a whole lot of nonsense, the consequences will be devastating for cities, counties, school districts, and states. This is a part of the larger role of the federal government. The pandemic is no one's, it's not the citizen's fault, it's not the city's fault, it's not the county's fault, it's not the state's fault. This is something that happened and we've reacted to. Federal government does have an obligation in this regard. That's one. Two, certainly some incentives as opposed to hamstringing or penalizing. I have no idea what Senator McConnell is even talking about. Wild horses couldn't stop them from passing the first $2 trillion paycheck protection program, another 480 some odd billion, whatever the case may be. In the meantime, now we need to take a pause in his words, for cities and states. This is politics at its worst when policy is really needed. And the alternative, of course, is, is, is even worse. And, you know, even talk of letting states go bankrupt, and it's just irresponsible. But having said that, if the federal government wants to put some amount of money that just goes, you know, based on all the different formulas and block granting, that kind of stuff, that's fine. To get more, you know, maybe there is some amount that is separate and apart and set aside. If some locale wants to do something even more creative, they can apply for that as a part of an incentive package. And, you know, with strict monitoring, et cetera, et cetera, and jump through all the boots and check all the boxes, that's fine. But let's wait and see what happens. I mean, when you have the Fed chairman, uh, you know, as one of the leading advocates for funding for cities and states, that should tell you something in this environment. So I think this is more politics than policy. Well, Eric or Mike, uh, your opinions on this? This is Eric. Certainly from my point of view and not my partner's point of view from Ide Bailey, from my personal point of view, what the Senate Majority Leader said was extremely misguided with a complete lack of understanding of how even his home Commonwealth of Kentucky runs, let alone wherever he lives in Kentucky let alone how the entirety of the of the 90,000 other governments in America run from a fiscal perspective. I agree with the mayor that if indeed there is not at least some inkling of a package or maybe just a more flexibility in the CARES Act just to get the budget of every state and local government to close as of June 30, those who are June 30s, at least affording some form of flexibility in the CARES Act would be the bare minimum to do. And on a secondary phase to allow, to provide certainly a much needed funding to supplant revenues on a go forward basis, at least through 2021, if not into 2022, because as some analysts have indicated, we're looking at a two to perhaps worst case scenario, 10 year event of a restructuring of how government revenues are gonna run. And this is just uh, absolutely devastating in many, 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 many aspects, but can be solved with folks taking the rhetoric to the side and understanding what really what, what we're facing. I'll just briefly echo what the mayor and Eric just said and pivot a little bit differently. I do think that Congress does need to provide additional funding, but for those that are listening who have probably been aware that this economic downturn is more and more being compared to the Great Depression, you know, that started at the end of 1929. And when you hear this morning that we had another 2 million new claims in unemployment and we're approaching 40 million Americans unemployed, start thinking about the imagery of the Great Depression. Start thinking about the imagery of bread lines, people who are displaced from their homes. And it's like, the mayor's right. If we don't get some sort of relief at the state and local level, elected leadership is going to be forced with some terrible decisions to make between providing for public safety and providing for social services and the social service safety net that we need to take care of our people. And those are terrible, terrible decisions that are being placed upon local leadership. And it's not as if state and local governments can print their own money. Uncle Sam can. If I may follow up as a devil's advocate, they can't print their own money, but they can borrow. 
why wouldn't additional borrowing work or will it work along with cuts to respond to, if this is a short run event, to respond to the current stringencies and getting these budgets passed? Well, I'm not not sure that this is a short term event. And that's the second part of the question, Mayor Nutter. It seems to me there are two separate approaches. If it's a short term event, that is if we're out of it at the end of the year, or if, as we heard, I'm sure it was Mike or Eric, Maybe this is, to Mike, I believe, it's a 10-year event, and then it seems to be a whole different. But in any case, yeah. in the short run, if it's assuming, what options are there besides firing? Can we borrow? Well, so I can, it says it's a function of what their current debt service is. And even then, you still have to take, you really do have to take into account, you know, what's your standing with the various rating agencies, what kind of rates you're going to get, et cetera. Again, I would just point out, Philly was one of the few cities in the United States of America coming out of the economic crisis that whose bond rating was upgraded. And that was solely because, you know, we had plans, we communicated constantly, we told the truth, and we actually did the things that we said we were going to do. Some other places might not be, you know, somewhat, if you're right up against your debt ceiling, borrowing may not even be an option for you, unless you did it directly, maybe from Treasury or some, or some other, you know, special circumstance. Mike, were we, did you increase borrowing? Were we up against the debt ceiling at that point? Rates are at all-time lows, right? So perhaps we could. Uh, Going back, did you increase yeah, your... testing my memory a little bit. We certainly did the regular borrowings. I mean, you remember most of our pathway out was the increase in sales tax. Right. Uh, for us, which required a General Assembly approval. It was not easy. I don't think massive borrowing, someone can certainly correct me, I don't think massive borrowing was particular great option for us because of the level of debt that we already have outstanding. Right. Right. Susan, yeah. let me just point out to you that in the Detroit bankruptcy years before, when Detroit borrowed $1.4 billion from my clients, at the time they did it, Detroit was had already maxed out on its legal borrowing limit, and they had to do something very creative, and they established these shell corporations off the books. And it was these shell corporations that issued certificates of participation that these banks bought. And those certificates were credit enhanced by a, an agreement between the city and the shell corporation to match fund the coupon payments. And then it was credit enhanced by Fidget and Syncora. And at the time they did the deal in 2006, 2007, it won the award from the bond buyer as the deal of the year. And then fast forward to 2013, that was the deal everybody pointed to that broke Detroit's back. So I don't think borrowing is always a good option. If it's really short term and you've got capacity, like the mayor says, then yes, go ahead. But if borrowing is just an excuse to avoid making hard decisions, you're wasting a crisis. And that's what we have here. As bad as this looks, There is an opportunity in the crisis to take strong leadership positions and fix the problems that have plagued cities and states and look for a long-term vision on fixing it. You know, there's something Michael said that's now triggering a thought, more like a flashback. So I think, Susan, I do think that we may have refinanced our PICA bonds a couple of times, which for the other panelists may not follow Philadelphia. The big massive borrowing actually helped us the first time in our own economic crisis from the 80s into the 90s, which is how we ended up with uh, the Pennsylvania Intergovernmental Cooperation Authority. That was the massive borrowing, which kept us at a pretty high debt ceiling level in the first place. But we may have, because of interest rates, we may have refinanced that uh, on a couple of occasions and saved some money. If if I can just jump in, right now, the the city of New York is asking the state legislature for permission to borrow up to $13.5 billion through the transitional New York City Transitional Finance Authority, which was a Mayor Bloomberg creation. The question there, the question for New York State, which has signaled it may want to borrow $11 billion and extend those loans to Illinois, which, which is counting on loans from the Federal Reserve to balance its budget. The question is, is A, how much federal aid will be forthcoming and over what period? And then B, when these borrowings come due, these are very short-term borrowings just to, to bridge a two-month cash flow gap. When these bonds come due, will the 
the issuers be able to repay them. This is what drove Puerto Rico into, into bankruptcy with $70 billion in debt. States and cities already have at least, well, states alone have at least a trillion dollars in unfunded pension liabilities, more if you believe Moody's or, or other calculations. I'm just using official numbers. There's a considerable amount of debt outstanding, and it makes you wonder whether we'll borrow very heavily to get over the hump now, but this is at a cost of some kind of painful restructuring later. States can't go bankrupt, as Senator McConnell suggested, but states have defaulted in the past. And the last default, which was Arkansas in the Depression, the federal government eventually became involved in it, helped the state work it out, and actually actually earned a profit for the feds. So we may be fixing things up today to preserve those essential services, but at a cost of 10 or 15 years down the road. Bill, if I may ask you, as well as our panelists, there's an absence of reference, except briefly, to the Fed's option of borrowing at the Fed window. Why is that? The Fed is still working out the details. First, the, the Fed was proposing very short-term borrowing just to bridge the, the gap uh, that was created by moving the income tax deadline to July, when most jurisdictions expect income taxes in April. Then it became loans of up to three years maturity. Now there's a discussion of the Fed taking on longer term obligations. The way so far these deals have been priced, the Fed's pricing, because there really haven't been many deals with the Fed, the way these have been priced is at a penalty rate such that it's not particularly economically advantageous to borrow from the Fed. This is a, an old dictum of central banking that you lend generously, but at a, at a good rate. We're seeing this right now. Illinois sold general obligation bonds about 10 days ago. They paid just about what they would have paid from the Federal Reserve, which is a below investment grade rating type of price. So we'll see that right now that the Fed's pricing is not terribly attractive, but they're a lender of last resort and a backstop for the market. Maybe that's the whole purpose here. The market is $4 trillion and there is private capital that will take on this risk. You know, uh, you know I've also mentioned that the Fed has also put forward this uh, municipal liquidity facility. This is exactly uh, referring to, Mike, yes. Yeah, yeah, and infuse it with more dollars. And one of the questions, I guess, is whether cities, in some instances, are even aware of that or see it as a viable option. Well, certainly from a conversation I've had with one of my clients uh, who's a uh, county person, they felt that the uh, rates being offered by the MLF were punitive at best. And that that's the way she described it. And, yeah, it was punitive at best. And will the Fed relax some of those uh, costs? I hope so. We're hearing from the Fed, from Jay Powell, the Fed chair, that there's need for fiscal action. So it looks like uh, they may feel as though they've done their share. But as we've heard in our last session or two sessions ago, the uh, facility that they've set up, while a good backstop, is not yeah. being used, perhaps because of a hesitancy of taking on more debt and having to repay it, because this is right. not a short-run phenomenon. Perhaps you want folks could respond yeah. to that. At least from my standpoint, that is a problem in the fact that the many, many of our governments across the country are at or near their debt limits. And because of previous borrowing or structuring issues of, from previous borrowing, and they may be in the middle or towards the tail of paying those off, which involve high amounts of debt service. Now, that said, also you have other jurisdictions uh, which require, obviously, legislative approval or even referenda. And so there's a time factor that's involved in doing it. And you're certainly not going to get anything done before June 30, you know, with the squabbling going on. Again, I would just say that the swiftness with which the initial pieces of legislation, two, three, four pieces, you know, wild horses couldn't stop the Congress from moving those pieces along. And now when it comes to cities and states, suddenly there's a there's a hesitancy. The arrogance of them thinking that somehow, some way, on the first or second go round with highly complicated legislation, that they suddenly got it perfectly right and had figured it all out is the absurdity and the tragedy of this whole situation. We've got 40 million people that are unemployed. Why aren't we talking about a works project administration solution 
like FDR put in place. Right. Because totally if the government's going to lend money to state and local, then they can get something for it. Put it into infrastructure. Create the jobs that are needed to build the infrastructure that we all know is lacking. And you can create some of those incentives, Bill, that you were referring to. Because let's say that a city wants to build a new bridge, but they've never wrestled with their pensions. Well, if they put forward proactively, here's what we're going to do to fix our pensions and it meets certain criteria, then Uncle Sam can lend them the money at treasury level rates. Or if they're not going to wrestle with their pension problem, you can still have the infrastructure money, but there's going to be a little bit of a premium on it. So there is a way to change behavior and stimulate the economy by creating jobs through the building of badly needed infrastructure. I'm afraid we're going to have to end it there. That, that's a really that would require leadership. Well, uh, let's, uh, <laughs> yes, leadership. Have, you got it, Mayor. Last word, because I think the short run, long run. How quickly can we get this done? Right. May, Mayor, can you weigh in? Sure. I mean, I wasn't making an offhand comment. I mean, we don't even have a national testing program. We don't have a national contact tracing program. So, you know, all of these things are in fact doable. They just they require leadership. They require a plan. They require a vision and a bringing together of the various parties that would be involved in this. And the whole concept of federalism would perfectly serve us in this moment with the federal government, states, counties, and cities all working in partnership. As someone said earlier, put a little bit of the politics aside because 100,000 people as of yesterday have died in two and a half months. Let's cut the nonsense out, provide some leadership, and show why America is the great country that it is. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Well, Thank you, uh, Mayor Nutter, Susan, Eric, and Mike. Thank you. Thank you, listeners. You've been listening to Special Briefing. You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local government's finances in the wake of COVID-19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.